All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open the word of God this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance and direction on our study of the word this morning. Father, we're so grateful for all that you've given us. You are the source of all that we have. You're the source of our salvation, which is so important to us. You're the source of our new spiritual life, and you are the source of the scriptures that we study, that we may learn about you and about our Lord Jesus Christ, and that we may learn about the rich life that you have promised us, and that you will supply us if we walk with you. Now, Father, as we study your word today, may we be challenged by what we learn understanding that we have a challenge before us as believers, and that is to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, to be disciples, to be spiritually mature, to be lights in the world, and to shine forth as lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. And we pray that we might have the uh, spiritual courage to step up to the challenge, that we might glorify you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 10. You might keep a note or something over in Mark 9 because we'll go there eventually, but we're primarily looking at Matthew 18 as we go through through the Gospels. And one of the things that happens as you study through the Gospels is especially the synoptics. They're called synoptics because they're like synonyms, okay? They are uh, parallel to one another, but they're differences, and those differences relate to what the author is trying to accomplish to his audience. And Matthew is writing somewhere around 50 A.D., so 17 years have gone by since the cross. He's writing to a primarily Jewish audience, reaffirming that, yes, indeed, even though Jesus uh, was crucified and was resurrected, the kingdom will still come eventually, and explaining why it has been postponed, and that, and he's reaffirming to them that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the one who fulfills all of the promises and prophecies related to the Messiah from the Old Testament. But first he came to suffer, he came for the cross, and then he will return a second time, a second time in order to establish his kingdom. In the meantime, a new age has entered in, and this age is related to the church. The church is mentioned, that word is mentioned for only the second time in this chapter we're studying in Matthew 18. And the focal point in this age is to make students. The word that is used in the scripture is disciples, a word that's used so much and overused, I think, a lot, that people lose the sense of what it means. It means to be students, to be followers, to be willing to give your life to completely to the teaching of the person you're following. Now, that's not the condition for getting into heaven. That is the condition for spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. Salvation is a free gift. We are to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him and him alone for our eternal salvation. We do nothing to earn or deserve it. But then Scripture says, in addition to our salvation which guarantees an eternal destiny in heaven. What, in addition to that, we are to grow and mature, and that to the degree that we do, there's an incentive that's, that's available, and that's related to rewards. And rewards are for those disciples who do well. And that's the thrust of what Jesus is teaching in this passage, is some of the characteristics of a disciple. And the, and the, the teaching aid that he uses is a little child. 
and he's addressing the issues that are raised in this particular chapter related to the position in the kingdom by understanding something about little children and comparing that, using that as, as an analogy. Now, where we're going to go in Matthew 18 is important because in the, as we get into the next section, he lays the foundation. We've got to just sort of walk our way through this. And what he's going to focus on and what will become the focus is on forgiveness. Now, for many people, forgiveness is an exceptionally difficult doctrine. The forgiveness of one another. And even understanding God's forgiveness for us is difficult for some people who feel like whatever they have gone through in life is just somehow too great for the grace of God. But nothing that anybody goes through is too great for the grace of God. God's grace is related to his omnipotence. That means he is able to do whatever he wants to do in relation to his plan. He is able to solve the sin problem. He's omniscient, which means he knows every sin everybody's ever committed. And in his grace, he imputed that sin or credited that sin to Jesus so that Jesus paid for every sin on the cross. Nothing got dropped. Nothing was forgotten. Nothing was too great for Christ to pay the penalty for. And it was all paid for at the cross. That's our pattern for understanding forgiveness, that as Romans 5.8 says, that we were at enmity with God. We were God's enemies. God is ho- We were hostile to God. But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He, God was willing to forgive us. He initiated grace, and he initiated this grace forgiveness, and that becomes a pattern for us, and that's what's going to be developed and explained by Jesus in, in, in Matthew 18. But for many people... They have just have problems with forgiveness. It's related to unconditional love. There are some people who are saying, Lord, you just can't ask me to love that person. And part of love, as Jesus demonstrates in John 13, is forgiving one another. That's the part of the illustration when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. That's an illustration of forgiveness and cleansing. And then he says, go and do likewise. And then he says that at the end of that chapter, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. And that command grows out of his demonstration of forgiveness. So you can't separate forgiveness from love. And last time I talked about the the fact that this uh, this section in Matthew 18 uh, five through nine is really related to understanding understanding God's love, and yet he he builds on that. So even though we face in life people who do things to us that seem just inexcusable and unforgivable, they continue to do things. They continue to provoke us in many different ways through deceit, betrayal, uh, abuse, uh, consistent failures, lack of loyalty that God again and again in the Scripture reminds us uh, that we are to forgive uh, one another. In Matthew, there's numerous places where this is emphasized. We've seen it emphasized in Matthew 6, 9. We've seen it emphasized in Matthew um, uh, 6, 14, and 15, and in Matthew 9, 1 through 8. And again, forgiveness lies at the heart of much of what Jesus is going to teach in the rest of Matthew. Now, the easy part for us in terms of forgiveness often are minor infractions, especially somebody we care about. Sometimes we we are so willing to forgive someone we care deeply about, but if somebody we don't care about so much does the same thing, we don't want to forgive them. Have you ever noticed how, how we're that inconsistent? So we need to learn what it means to forgive because that's inherent in what it means to love. Now, just a reminder of the context. This is important. The first thing that's raised is the question. As we look at the beginning of Matthew 18.1, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The question is on ranking. Who's going to outrank the others? Who's going to have the best position? Who's going to have personal status? That's the focal point of their question. And the answer that Jesus gives them is that they need to be humble like this little child. 
The focus on humility, as we've seen in our study, is that there's two aspects, two dimensions to humility that are mentioned in Scripture or emphasized in Scripture. One is submission to authority. Jesus humbled himself by being obedient and going to the cross in Philippians uh, 2, 7 and 8. Second, in those same verses, or in Philippians 2, 6, rather, humility is not asserting your own rights, but it's seeking, uh, it's not asserting your own rights or seeking personal status or position for its own sake. That's what the context is. They're saying who's going to have the best position? Who's going to outrank the others? And the analogy with the child is, is not emphasizing that. And this is the, this second aspect of humility is what is emphasized in Philippians 2 6. That though he existed, that is, Jesus existed in eternity past in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God something to be asserted. He's not going to assert his rank, his privilege, his position. He's going to enter into human history as, as a human being. Now, the, the second point we need to remember in terms of context is this analogy to a child. And this is often, as I pointed out uh, in the past, couple of weeks been misunderstood uh, and so there are a lot of different qualities you can go to for a child that might be analogous but but the issue here is ranking the question sets that up and in the ancient world it wasn't that the child was innocent or the child wasn't self-assertive or the child wasn't arrogant or wasn't rebellious or any of those things it's a child had no position it wasn't like a child should be seen and not heard a child shouldn't be seen or heard a child had no ranking whatsoever in society, and that's the point is that disciples are to be like little children and that they're not asserting or focused on their position or their privilege at all. And then in Matthew 18.5, Jesus says, whoever receives one little child like this, he's changing from that little boy that he's taken to be the visual training aid and he's now talking about the spiritual little child, the one who's humbled himself. And so he's no longer talking about little children. And that is a, such a common error in the way this passage is often exposited is that that's missed, that he's no longer talking about children. This isn't about babies. This isn't about God's love for children. This is about God's love for the little spiritual child who humbles himself so that he can enter with fullness into the kingdom of heaven. And I pointed out that these are not terms or phrases that are related to justification because Jesus is talking to disciples who are already, what? Justified. They're already regenerate. So Jesus isn't telling them that you need to convert um, and become like little children because they're already justified. He's telling them, quit acting in arrogance change your mind, and act with humility. He's talking to them about a spiritual life issue, not about a justification or salvation issue. So in Matthew 18.5, he says we have to uh, be like a little child, humble like a little child in order to grow and mature uh, in the spiritual life. The third thing we came to last time is that, that Jesus gives a serious warning as to what's going to happen if we as disciples don't do this. There are consequences. Now, the consequence can't be the eternal lake of fire, can it? Because we're already saved. And that's where we get into understanding a couple of these metaphors that are used in the, in the uh, Gospels that are often mistranslated and mishandled and really sets us off to misunderstand the focal point of the passage. This is why I keep laboring this a little bit, just because we have visitors that come in and some folks miss a Sunday, just to make sure everybody understands where we are. And some of this I haven't taught in a while, so I want to remind everybody of this. So, so there's a warning that if you cause one of these little ones to sin, we'll get back to what that means a little later on, but it means to cause them to stumble, primarily in the area of doctrine and apostasy. If you lead them astray into false teaching, then it would be better if someone cast a millstone. This is not the little, smaller one that might be used in the kitchen, but the really large one that was turned on the 
to grind the wheat out outside and was pulled by a donkey. It would be better to have a donkey stone hung around your neck and drowned in the depth of the sea. That sounds pretty harsh. And then he goes on to say, pronounces two woes, says, Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. Now, what's interesting, we'll get back to this later on. I'll show you the words. That the word cause you to sin is the word scandalizo. It's the verb, and it doesn't mean cause you to sin. It means to cause you to, to, to fall off the track in terms of apostasy. It's being a stumbling block. And, um, and the word for offenses is scandalon. That's just the noun form. So it's, if by, by translating it with these different words, you miss the, the connections. Uh, remember with the old, old, old cartoons, they had follow the bouncing ball. Well, the bouncing ball is hitting on similar words, and when you don't translate something with the same words as you go through the English, you miss the connections, the connecting points that God the Holy Spirit wants us to see. And he says, Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses, that is false teaching, we could just translate, Translate that, woe to the world because of false doctrine, because of false teaching, for false teaching must come. But woe to, to that man, that makes it individual and personal, to whom that false teach, from whom that false teaching comes. And then there's the warning that if you're the one guilty of this, um, that and you fall, and, and if you're guilty of this, then you're going to come under divine discipline. And the way it's structured is Jesus uses a hyperbole. He's not saying to literally maim yourself. But he's using this as an extreme form of the state of a statement in order to get our attention so we can understand how serious it is. And then he says it's it's better to have your hand, your foot cut off or your eye put out uh, rather than be cast into everlasting fire. And the everlasting fire here is parallel to hellfire in the English in verse nine. But this is this is a bit of a problem because it seems like Jesus is threatening them with the lake of fire. But wait a minute, didn't we already say that they're, they're believers? They're disciples. They're the, they're, they're the 11 of them are going to go on to be apostles. So how could Jesus be threatening them with the lake of fire? Now, this is such an important verse because it relates to understanding the free grace gospel, that we can't lose our salvation and and Jesus, so Jesus isn't threatening them with a loss of salvation, and he's not threatening them with a lake of fire. Once we come to understand that, we realize this isn't at all talking about, about unbelievers. But it's difficult to handle. So let me just review this a bit, and then I, while I'm doing this, you might want to flip back over to Mark 9. Remember I pointed out that the term, if you look at the top of the slide, you see the Hebrew phrase on the left, the Greek word on the right, the Hebrew original is Gay Hinnom, the Valley of Hinnom. Gay is the word meaning the Hebrew word for valley. So that's pulled together sort of one word in the Greek as Gehenna. But it refers to the Valley of Hinnom. And if they had just left it and translated it, the Valley of Hinnom, we wouldn't have these problems. Because every time you turn around, you see this in the Gospels, and Jesus uses this word, people think you're talking about going to the Lake of Fire. Even the word hell is a bad translation. That comes out of a Norwegian background word, and uh, so, so this just gets confusing. In the Old Testament, the Valley of Hinnom was just south of, of Israel, still is just south of Israel, and it was a place by the time of Christ that they used as a garbage dump, and so uh, fires were continuously burning there as they're burning the, burning the garbage and burning the refuse. And so it was thought by a lot of people that, wow, what a great picture of the lake of fire. And besides, it's called eternal fire there in, in, um, in the verse we just looked at in Matthew chapter 8. So it's got to be the lake of fire, right? Wrong. And the Valley of Gehenna was the place where in the Old Testament in Second Chronicles 28.3, Jeremiah 7.31 and other passages, that they they set up these these huge idols to Moloch, not just one or two, but there were dozens and dozens of these. And the people would come, huge crowds of people, uh, several hundred, and they would bring their infants to sacrifice, to burn alive in the arms of Moloch. And so this was the, the, the low point in Israel's spirituality in the ancient world as they were murdering their children by the dozens. And so Gehenna came to symbolize 
a place of idolatry, a place of disobedience, and a place of spiritual failure in the life of Israel. This was one of the reasons God brought judgment on them in 586 B.C. And so the judgment for Gehenna is a historical judgment in time, not eternal. That's the main point there. This isn't talking about an eternal punishment. And in Jeremiah 19.6, Jeremiah predicted that as punishment for the sins, the valley would be used as a mass burial place when when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. Where they murdered their children, they in turn would be killed and buried when God brought temporal judgment upon Jerusalem. So the conclusion from our Old Testament study is that the Valley of Hinnom doesn't refer to eternal judgment, but to God's judgment against disobedience in time. Now, when we get over in the New Testament, most English translations translate this as hell or hellfire, as in the lake of fire. Most Bible dictionaries you read will do that. Commentaries you look at will do that. Other translations you look at will do that. And so I'm just warning you that if you want to go read this somewhere, there are some people who've done technical work on this. Uh, This isn't new new with me, but there are. You don't find it in too many places. It's pretty much become a traditional sort of interpretation. But the other thing that happens is, under the third point, is it's used in places like Matthew 18.8 with eternal fire. And the question comes, well, Isn't it clear that this is eternal fire and the eternal doesn't eternal mean eternal and everlasting? Now, I want you to go back to what we were reading in Mark 9. In Mark 9, we have same kind of context. Jesus is talking about the same thing, causing the little ones to stumble. And he adds something. And for example, in verse 43, he uses the same hyperbole. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell. See, that's Gehenna. And the fire that shall never be quenched. Wait a minute. I thought you said eternal doesn't necessarily mean eternal. And I pointed that out last time that there are passages such as Jeremiah 17, verse 4, where it's talking about uh, that they would, uh, at the time of the 586 judgment, that they would... um, God says, you, even yourself, shall let go of your heritage, which I gave you. I'm kicking you out of the land. The land was the heritage. And I will cause you to serve your enemies in the land which you do not know. They were going to be taken to Babylon. For you have kindled a fire in my anger, which shall burn forever. Does that mean God's still mad at them? No. Because he brought them back to the land in, in 538 B.C., so forever doesn't mean forever, it just means for a long time in some context. Deuteronomy fifteen seventeen, talking about a, a slave who uh, was supposed to be released at the end of seven years and decides, no, he wants to stay a slave, that he would have his ear pierced and they would take it, put his ear up against the doorpost, take an awl and pierce it. And it, say, and it says, he shall be your servant forever. Well, that just means to the end of his physical life, he's not going to be a slave to this person on into eternity. So those are two examples where forever doesn't mean eternity. Now, when we get into Matthew, we look at this verse 44. Verse 44, Jesus goes on to say that the fire shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That sounds pretty eternal to me, doesn't it? How, what in the world is going on here? And then he goes on three times he quotes, quotes that verse. So I just picked the last one up here and put it up on the screen, Mark 9, 47 and 48. Their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, this is important to understand that this is a quote from the Old Testament. It's a quotation from Isaiah 66, 24, which is the very last book, I mean, excuse me, the very last verse in the book of Isaiah. And we read there, they shall go forth, that is, those who are entered into the kingdom, shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. That's how Isaiah ends. Sounds, almost sounds eternal. Now, I want you to turn there because I want to look at the context just a minute because sooner or later this 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 is going to come up. And this is a, 
again, one of those passages where you have to do more than just look at the at the immediate context, because the immediate context here could, might really trick you. In Isaiah 66, verse 23, I'll let you back up to 22. For as the new heaven and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Shabbat to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. Now we're talking about, I bet, I bet if I took a poll, everybody here is going to say, new heaven, new earth, that means it's after the millennium, after the great white throne judgment, where Revelation uh, 21 says that God's going to create new heavens and new earth, right? Wrong. Okay? you got to look at context. Okay, so new heaven and new earth in Isaiah isn't the new heavens and new earth of Revelation 21. It's the millennial kingdom. And the way you know that is because in Isaiah 65, 17, it defines the term, and it's clear there that it's talking about the millennial kingdom. So this is talking about what happens at the end of the millennia, at the end of the tribulation, when you've had this assault on Jerusalem, and the Lord Jesus Christ returns, destroys the armies of the Antichrist and the false prophet, and Jerusalem and Israel are just filled with the corpses. See, that's another key word in Isaiah 66:24. In the new heavens and the new earth, in Revelation 21, the present heavens and new earth are what? Completely destroyed. So the, the, the satanic rebellion against God that occurs at the end of the tribulation, God is going to just incinerate their bodies with fire and brimstone. How many corpses are left when God incinerates you? Not much. So if God's incinerated you, all the enemies, at the end of the millennial kingdom, how are they going to look at the corpses? That, that, that's a little problem. Number two, corpses are not going to survive throughout eternity in the lake of fire. The corpses belong to this world. They are corporeal. They belong to this world. They're not the, the, Your present corpse goes into the ground. It's going to rot. It is not what's going to go into the lake of fire. So there we have another problem. So it's obvious that this can't be talking about what happens at the end of the millennium when the new heavens and new earth comes. Everything that's on this present earth and universe is, is completely decimated, completely destroyed, and God gives a new heavens and new earth. But according to Isaiah 65, 17, because Israel has been restored to the land... And God restores the kingdom. It's new, and it's called there the new. It's a new heavens. It's a new world for Israel as they've entered into this final redemptive relationship with their Messiah, who's going to rule and reign in, reign, uh, in Jerusalem. And when that happens, all these dead bodies are around. In fact, if you were to read through Ezekiel thirty nine eleven to sixteen, it's consistent with the picture there, because. Uh, Ezekiel 39, 11-16 refers to a seven-month period where the dead are going to be buried. It's going to take that long to clean up all of the corpses from that, that, uh, that victory that the Lord Jesus Christ has over the armies of the Antichrist and the false prophets. Seven months it, it's, it's going to take to clean up the land. Now, these corpses are going to be, be rotting. And this is the focal point of the, the imagery of the worm. Uh, the, this is the imagery of the worms and the maggots and whatever that are consuming the rotting flesh. And so the point of this passage isn't that this is going to go on forever, but that this is going to go on, like those other passages indicate, for, for a very long time. Now, while we're in Mark, we need to look at what else Jesus says here because it, it, it's not included in, in, in Matthew, but boy, does it set Matthew up. Very important. 
Jesus says, after verse 48, where he says, Their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, he then says in verse 49 and 50, For everyone will be seasoned with fire, that's purification, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Then he makes the point, verse 50, Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Go home, be warm, and be filled. Isn't that a great verse? You know, most of us, if we're reading through our Bible, we're going to put a question mark next to that verse because what in the world is Jesus talking about? If you don't understand the the time in which this was written and how salt was used, then you're really going to miss this. And a lot of people try and guess, and we covered this in earlier in Matthew, and a more detailed presentation is back in uh, Lesson 25, where Jesus says, you're to be the salt of the earth. And when I hit this this morning, I said, do I want to do this or not? I, I want to get into forgiveness, but I th- I've taught this once or twice, and this has to be locked into your brains because I hear people do this all the time. Lord, we're the salt of the earth. You know, we're to be, we're to bless the earth. No, that's not what that's talking about. And we need to understand what, how salt was used in the ancient world. So let me, let me, uh, look at 950 and then we'll go forward. And 950 says salt is good. The word for salt is the top word in the, uh, it's, excuse me, the salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, that's the top word, ah, on, alas. See, the word at the bottom is halas. That's the word for salt. So when you put an alpha prefix, because it starts with a, with a vowel, you have to put a in there, it means salty, no saltiness. It's lost its, its uh, savor. It's become unsalty. So he says salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor... How will you season it? And that's the word artuo. What's interesting is that all these different synonyms are used to describe this, and I'm not going to get, get you all distracted on that. But it goes back to understanding what Jesus said back in Matthew 5.13. He says, you're the salt of the earth. Now, if Jesus is telling you that you are the salt of the earth, don't you think we ought to properly understand what it means to be the salt of the earth? And he says almost the same thing. He uses different verbiage, but it's the same thing. If the salt loses its flavor... See, so if it's, if it, and there it really means if it becomes foolish. In other words, he's using an idiom meaning it's useless because the salt, the, 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 some of the properties of the salt don't seem to be there anymore, and that in and of itself is another problem. He says it's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now, if we look at the whole structure there, I put these different uh, translations up there to just show you. Uh, how it's handled. The New King James says, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? The uh, NASB says, if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? Uh, the Darby translation says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become insipid, wherewith shall it be salted? And then in Matthew, the NET says, but if salt loses its flavor, how can it be made salty again? So we got to understand this, and what is happening here is this metaphor where some properties of salt are being used as an analogy to understand something about a disciple. So there's a point of comparison. In other words, and, and by looking at this, this diagram with these two circles, if, if uh, you can see that most of what it would apply to salt doesn't apply. That's, that's the interesting thing in studying metaphors is you can have 20 characteristics of something and only one of them is the point of the analogy. The other 19 are irrelevant. They, they don't apply. So what we see historically when we try to interpret this salt metaphor is that salt's designed to create thirst. So you as a believer, if you're salty, you're going to create a thirst for the word of God among people around you. I haven't really seen that happen a whole lot, other than when I'm here functioning as your pastor, but out in everyday life, I don't see that happen a lot. Uh, to season food, that would be a kitchen metaphor, okay? Is the point of this going to be a kitchen metaphor, or is this going to be an agricultural or a farming metaphor? 
That's the big question. Uh, it's used to preserve food. That would also be a kitchen metaphor. It was used as fertilizer. Now, most of us are going, wait a minute, fertilizer, if you salt a field, it's not going to produce. But they, he's not talking about that salt wasn't used as the pure fertilizer. It's used as an ingredient in fertilizer as a weed killer. You don't, it's not just pure salt. And the rabbis talked about salt as being analogous to wisdom, or it was used, salt is used for purification. And sometimes salt would be put on a lamp's wick so that it would burn a little brighter. So these are just seven ways in which salt is used in, uh, metaphorically. So how are we supposed to figure this out? Jesus is talking to them, and he says, you're the salt of the earth. Now, the way most of us think of that when we hear it is Jesus is saying you're the salt of the world, the world being the populated cosmos, the populated world around us that God loved and sent his son to die for. But the Hebrew word here for earth isn't cosmos. That's the meaning of, uh, that's the word cosmos. For God so loved the world, that's cosmos. Doesn't say God so loved the earth. This word in, in Greek is the word gay. And it means land or soil or physical earth. It's not talking about the world. It is never used as a synonym of cosmos. Think about that. So the idea that we're the salt of the earth and taking that to mean that somehow we're to impact culture and society around us doesn't fit because gay is never used that way. So immediately, 99.9% of the times you probably use that phrase and I've used that phrase and most people use that phrase has nothing to do with the biblical meaning. So we need to eradicate this whole pseudo-idiom out of our vocabulary. So, if that's the, the first issue I've pointed this out, that gay is used 39 times in Matthew, 92 times in the Gospels, and it, it's never used as a synonym with the world. Option two is that the earth, meaning land, soil, ground, earth, as it, it refers to the land. And in a couple of places, it refers to the planet in contrast to the heavens. But it's talking about the physical planet, not the inhabitants. So salt of the earth probably means salt for the land. Salt for the land, which fits fertilizer. So if salt of the earth is understood as salt for the earth, then Jesus is uh, not using a kitchen metaphor. He's using an agricultural metaphor. And this is significant because that's how Luke seems to use it and, and, and as he expands on this in Luke 14, 34, and 35. He says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land, gay. And what happened in the ancient world is that salt wasn't pure. Salt itself is an extremely stable compound. Sodium chloride doesn't deteriorate, but they would take uh, they would take lumps of what was mostly salt from the Dead Sea and and from other areas, and the salt would so, sort of leach out into uh, into the dung pile, and it would help uh, it would develop into sort of a, a, a weed killer aspect of that dung. So that's what fits here because what Jesus says, it's not fit for the land to put it out into the, into the soil, and nor is it fit for the dung hill. See, that's where they would put it was in the dung hill, and it would become part of the compost that would later be put on the earth. So it's useless now, so you throw it out. So that's the point of this analogy. It changes your whole perspective on what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about creating a thirst for for truth or for the word of god he's talking about the fact that you're as disciples you're to be the salt for the soil you are to generate productiveness you're to generate productivity you are to you are as as disciples you're to go make disciples who are to be fruitful 
That's the focal point of the analogy is to create productivity among other believers, spiritual uh, productivity. So when Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth, but if uh, the salt becomes foolish, how shall it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. This is divine discipline on a believer who is a failure because he's not being used to challenge and encourage other believers to grow and mature uh, in, in the spiritual life. So, as I just pointed out, salt, sodium chloride, is incredibly stable and doesn't decay, so it doesn't lose its saltiness. So something else has to be going on here, and that has to do with the fact that, that the salt could leach out, because it comes in this compound with all these other elements, the salt would leach out over time, and what was left is useless. It's not going to do anything uh, to produce fruitfulness uh, in the soil. So what Jesus is doing is using an agricultural method that emphasizes that a disciple should be productive rather than non-productive. And that fits the context in Matthew 5 of rewards and good works. And that's what Jesus is, is emphasizing. So when we look at this and we go back to Mark chapter uh, chapter 9, verse 50, Jesus says salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? You've got to be productive. Have salt in yourselves. In other words, as disciples, you need to be productive, and you are to challenge and encourage other believers to be productive. But what goes with that? You just can't be aggravating everybody around you. You've got to have peace with one another. See, that, that peace and forgiveness go together in the New Testament. So see how, th th now this statement isn't included in Matthew, but it's the same context, it's the same conversation, and what that shows us is that all of this, the, this illustration, this warning about the stumbling block, this warning about, about uh, severe divine discipline is all pointed to, to challenging the disciples to learn what it means to have peace with one another and to forgive one another, which is what is about to be the, 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 the discussion point in Matthew 18 when Peter says, well, what if somebody, somebody sins? And then you go to them with one witness and then two, and then you if, eventually if they're non-responsive, you take it to the church. And then, he said, then Peter says, well, wait a minute, what if they sin against me? How many times do I have to forgive them? See, the whole rest of the context of Matthew 18 deals with this issue of forgiveness, which is inherent to love. Jesus' new commandment that we are to love one another as he loved us. And as I pointed out earlier in John 13, when he's celebrating the Passover meal, the Seder with his disciples before they go to, he goes to the cross, he's demonstrating forgiveness and cleansing for one another. He says, by this, all men that will know that you're my disciples. He doesn't say, this is how all people are going to know you're a believer, because this is discipleship material. This is how you know you're growing and maturing as a believer. I pointed that out last time in Hebrews 13, let brotherly love continue, and that includes hospitality. But Matthew 13 grows out of the context of just a few verses earlier in Hebrew, I'm, excuse me, Hebrews 13 grows out of the context of Hebrews 12, where just prior to that, the writer of Hebrews says, pursue peace with all people. See, that's understanding and developing forgiveness for one another, even when they've exasperated us, even when they've walked all over us, no matter what it is, because there's not one person here who's had somebody betray you like Jesus Christ was betrayed by his creatures. He came into his own, John 1 says, and his own received him not. Okay, none of us have ever had done to us what happened between God's creatures and God. So the warning in Hebrews 12.15 is that we're to watch carefully lest we fall short of the grace of God. That doesn't mean that we lose grace. It means that we quit acting graciously towards others, and instead of responding in grace to rejection, bitterness, hostility, we, uh, we become bitter. So we have to be careful not to let bitterness spring up, which gives root to a host of mental attitude sins. 
So as I wrap up this morning, this is the warning. I put the words in here this time so you can catch it. Jesus is saying, whoever receives a little child like this in my name receives me. This is talking about family relationships. You as a disciple need to receive other disciples in Jesus' name because they're believers. And we need that, and that involves accepting them into the congregation. That involves accepting them when they come as visitors. That involves accepting, sometimes opening our homes to people. And then he says, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble and not causes them to sin, sin, it's the word scondolizo. And as I pointed out last time, that has to do with causing them to fall by the wayside because of false teaching. And, and notice he says down in verse 7, Woe to the world because of offenses. That's the same word, scandalon, causing uh, false teaching to distract somebody uh, in their spiritual life. It's used three times in Matthew 18.7. In Matthew 18.8, it goes back to uh, the verb, scandalizo, if your hand or foot causes uh, you to stumble, uh, fall into apostasy. Cut it off, cast it from you. It's better to enter life maimed rather than to be cast into uh, to be cast into everlasting fire. If your eye causes you to stumble or to, to be apostatize, pluck it out, cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into extreme divine discipline. And then he says, "See that you do not despise one of these little ones." So don't react. If somebody is, somebody messes up and they're a new believer, but they, they, they really want to grow, but they're young, they're going to mess up, and don't react to them and despise them because of their their youth, because of the mistakes they made, because they offended you. Don't despise one of these little ones, for I say to you, their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. A verse that is typically used and it's frequently cited as a verse that every little child has a guardian angel. You think that's what that means? After we look at this context, he's not talking about physical baby, physical infants anymore. He's talking about believers, believers who want, who have humbled themselves and want to grow to maturity, that they have a representative angel. And that this angel is is an advocate for them in heaven. That's what it seems to say, that he sees the face of my Father who's in heaven. Now, this relates to the other verse on guardian angels, which is Hebrews 1.14. Are they not all ministering to... Are they not all ministering spirits, talking about angels, sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Now, that's not talking about justification. What's the key word there? Inheriting. That is those disciples who are going to be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ, those who have grown and matured. So who gets a guardian angel? It's believers who are, who are pursuing spiritual growth. Those are the ones who get this angel. Now, what else is said about that? That's it, folks. We don't get much of a glimpse. We get a hint. doesn't go much beyond that. And so where the word of God doesn't go, I'm not going to go. So what is all this doing? It's setting us up to understand exactly what's going to take place in the coming illustration of this lost lost sheep in verse 11. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Now, some of your translations will not have verse 11 in there. Some will. It's not in some manuscripts, and it is in a few, few and in the majority text. But I think it was, it's pros, probably borrowed from another context in, in Luke, because I don't think it really fits the context here. But it could. It could. So we'll treat it as if it, it's there. The word saved isn't talking about justification here, because the context is a little different. It's similar to the context in Luke 15, where we do have uh, the parable of a shepherd seeking the sheep. So I want to read these verses give you the summary point, and then we'll close and come back and talk about it more next time. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray? The man is a shepherd. He owns the sheep. This isn't talking about getting into the flock, which would be justification. You're already in the flock. The man owns the sheep. 
when you look at the parallel in Matthew 15, I mean Luke 15, it talks about uh, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and the lost son, the prodigal son. But in each of those cases, they're not lost like unsaved because the sheep originally belonged to the shepherd, the coin originally belonged to the woman, and the son is already in the family of the man. This is talking about forgiveness. It's talking about restoration when someone when someone sins. So if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, you start sinning and you're you're out of fellowship and you're going into carnality. Does he not lead the ninety nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is strayed? This just picks up the thread we've been seeing already. This is the initiative of God's grace and forgiveness. He goes looking to bring us back. He goes looking, and if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over the sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. That's the picture of the father of the prodigal son. When the prodigal son comes back, he throws a big party. Even so, it's not the will of your father who's in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. He's not talking about something physical happening to a little child. He's talking about a believer who goes out of fellowship and then destroys his life. God is going to seek to work in the life of the rebellious believer to bring him back in grace, experience forgiveness so that he can grow and continue. We always have to make sure we distinguish between the passages of Scripture. They're talking about how to be justified and those that are talking about how a believer is to live, how they're to grow, forgiving one another, loving one another, and how they are to be going to be forgiven by the Lord no matter what happens. And God's initiating grace is always going to seek to bring us back. He's wa- he wants to forgive us and to restore us, and there's nothing we can do that is too great for the grace of God with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to to really look at your word, examine it, to understand the significance of these metaphors and these images that are used here that are designed to teach such a tremendous truth related to forgiveness and love and ultimately your forgiveness uh, for our sins. Father, we pray that if there's anyone listening to this message, that they have, if they've never trusted in Christ as Savior, that they would, that they would trust in him, recognizing that Jesus paid the price in full at the cross and that we do nothing to earn it or deserve it, but that Jesus Christ paid it all. It's paid in full to die, And all we do is trust in him, believe it, accept it as a free gift. For the rest of us, the challenge is to be a disciple, to be a learner, to grow, to mature, and that you will uh, provide that which is necessary for us to grow and mature. But we have to be willing to be like that little child, not seeking personal status or privilege, but we're simply to seek obedience to you in every area of life that we might grow and mature and glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.